The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We're here this morning studying the word of God. We are studying in the life of David. And last Sunday morning, we began our study as we looked at David's family troubles uh, beginning and uh, we'll go back and work on that study. We'll review what we covered last Sunday and then pick up from there. There's also a new study that is uh, ready for this week, which has to do with vengeance and revenge. And uh, that that study is something we may get to today. It all depends on how things go. Um, but one way or the other, we have that study ready to go uh, if need be. Before we... Uh, dive into our study of the life of David. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. It gives us the opportunity to confess sins if needed. Also to humble ourselves before the eternal truth of God's word. These things are important in order for us to be truly prepared for the study of the word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this blessing of being able to quote-unquote gather in the sense that we're doing this virtually. Uh, We have a small group here at the church, but we are gathered together in spirit, studying your word together this morning. We pray that you would bless our time together, that we might be able to uh, learn whatever lessons you prepared for us. Father, we want to be closer to you. We know that through the lessons we learn from your word, we do draw near to you. We pray that you would help us to learn those lessons so that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. Uh, Well, I feel blessed this morning because uh, we have a gathering of four here this morning. Uh, We have uh, myself and Jesse and Lindy as we've had, and then Ken has actually joined us this morning as well to add an extra layer of security and it's uh, good to have Ken here and and have that blessing and uh, we are definitely in the sanctuary area as big as it is we definitely have our social distancing covered no problem at all Uh, these times are certainly uh, interesting times before we get started on our life of David study I uh, received from my wife she sent me in some text of a I guess a Facebook posting that Donella had done and I don't know if some of you remember Lyle and Donella Luger, and uh, they, um, you know, they came to this church for a while before they moved up to the uh, Georgetown area. And, um, you know, that's a, it, it, we still stay in contact. They're still on the mailing list and all that kind of thing, and, and uh, love those guys. And Donella uh, put this up, and I thought it was worthwhile to, uh, to talk about. Uh, it's talking about perspective on things. It starts out, my grandparents' world, no wonder they were so strong. So for, so for some perspective here, so it's a mess out there now, hard to discern between what's a real threat and what's just simple panic and hysteria. For a small amount of perspective at this moment, imagine you were born in 1900. On your 14th birthday, World War I starts and ends on your 18th birthday. 22 million people perish in that war. Later in the year, a Spanish flu epidemic hits the planet and runs until your 20th birthday. 50 million people die from it in those two years. Yes, 50 million. On your 29th birthday, the Great Depression begins. Unemployment hits 25%. The world GDP drops 27%. That runs until you're 33. The country nearly collapses along with the world economy. When you turn 39, World War II starts. You aren't even over the hill yet. And don't try to catch your breath. On your 41st birthday, the United States is fully pulled into World War II. Between your 39th and 45th birthday, 75 million people perish in the war. At 50, the Korean War starts. Five million perish. At 55, the Vietnam War begins and doesn't end for 20 years. Four million people perish in that conflict. On your 62nd birthday, you have the Cuban Missile Crisis, a tipping point in the Cold War, 
Life on our planet as we know it should have ended. Great leaders prevented that from happening. Then when you turn 75, the Vietnam War finally ends. Think of everyone on the planet born in 1900. How do you survive all of that? When you were, when you were a kid in 1985 and didn't think your 85-year-old grandparent understood how hard school was and how mean that kid in your class was, yet they survived through everything listed above. Perspective is an amazing art. Refined as time goes on, an enlightening like you wouldn't believe. Let's try and keep things in perspective. Let's be smart, help each other out. So the point of all that is uh, you have to put things in perspective. Uh, what we're facing right now is, is certainly a difficult thing. Uh, you can make arguments, I think solid arguments, that we have, as a people, we have overreacted to the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, but one way or the other, these are definitely difficult times. But people uh, that we knew when we were younger went through more difficult things than that. Uh, I've mentioned before, you know, my family, uh, goodness, uh, they were affected greatly by the 1900 hurricane down in Galveston that killed thousands of people when that hurricane hit. Uh, these kinds of things have gone on. And I, and I actually look at, I look at the fear pandemic. You know, I've been sending out those emails with the newsletters from Pastor John Eichmann of Grace Military Ministries. And uh, he talks about the fear pandemic and the economic pandemic that we have going on. I look at the fear pandemic and I look at how scared people are. Just, I mean, I mean, freaking out, you know, uh, hysteria in the streets. And I want to ask myself, what, in, what is it going to be like? And thankfully, we're not going to be here. What is it going to be like when the tribulation gets here and there's one event that takes place where a quarter of the world's population perishes and a second event where another third perishes? If you put those two together, half of the world's population dies, is gone in those two events. How, and remember, how long is the tribulation? Seven years. In, the period, in a period of less than seven years, half of the world population perishes. What is it going to be like on this earth during that time? We're getting a little preview of that. When we see the hysteria, we see how people are just absolutely losing their minds over this. Uh, we're getting a little preview of what it's going to be like. People are going to be hiding under the rocks. I mean, they are going to be absolutely scared out of their minds with what happens in the tribulation. Again, we won't be here for that. I'm thankful. But nonetheless, it's something to keep in mind. All right. Uh, to our Life of David study, let's review what we covered last Sunday morning. We talked about David's family troubles beginning. First of all, we see uh, David's son Amnon falling in love with his half-sister Tamar. Now, I believe it was more lust than love, uh, but that's, uh, that's another thing. We'll see that later. Um, Amnon was uh, David's son by his wife Ahinoam. Tamar was the sister of Absalom. They were David's children by his wife Mekah. And then I told you that word that talks about love, uh, Acheb, uh, includes the uh, carnal desires. Two other women in the Bible named Tamar. Uh, Tamar, we looked at that, the, the daughter-in-law of Judah, and that's probably who you thought of when you saw Tamar. And then a daughter of Absalom, he ends up naming his daughter Tamar uh, after his sister. Amnon's desire for Tamar was so strong that he made himself sick when he realized he could not win her affections. He was, uh, he was lusting after her, and he was trying to win her affections, and he couldn't do it. And uh, he literally w was making himself sick uh, over the, his desires. Uh, now, Amnon's friend Jonadab, his cousin actually, uh, but his friend as well, devised a scheme for him to get Tamar's attention. He, wa he wasn't able to get her attention, so uh, Jonadab came up with a scheme. Jonadab was pretty shrewd. Everybody knew that. He was a very cunning guy, and so he came up with a shrewd scheme. Uh, his plan was for Amnon to play ill. Now, remember, he made himself sick um, because of, he made himself sick because of the... Uh, 
uh, lust that he had and the fact that he was denied access to Tamar. He couldn't even get her attention for that matter. But this idea was to play ill with some illness. You know, we don't know what it was. We don't have any idea what the illness was that he feigned. But nonetheless, he was going to play ill and get uh, David to send Tamar to tend to him. Well, Amnon decided to follow Jonadab's plan, and then he eventually lured Tamar into the bedroom. Uh, David, innocently in this whole thing, he didn't know about this whole scheme, so he innocently sent Tamar to attend to Amnon. Uh, Amnon told him about it, so he said, okay, I'll send her over. And Tamar did exactly what David asked of her, uh, but then Amnon refused to eat. See, so if you see what Jonadab's scheme was just for him to get the attention of Tamar, right? That way she'd be there, she'd be feeding him, he'd get some time with her. But what does he do? He doesn't do exactly what Jonadab's scheme was. He won't eat. She's there and she's got the food and he refuses to eat. So he sends everyone away. That's all the servants and everybody else who's around so he could lure Tamar into the bedroom and so that she would be in there with him alone, right? So he's setting himself up to be able to do something bad. He's making provision for the sin nature. Once Amnon had Tamar alone with him in the bedroom, he raped her. Uh, Horrible incident. First of all, uh, before he did that, he asked her to sleep with him voluntarily, right? And she said no. She refused Uh, knowing that such things are disgraceful and forbidden. But interestingly, interestingly, uh, she was actually willing to marry him. She actually said, okay, it would talk to David. David won't refuse me. He will give, he will give me to you. So uh, she went, even though she was his half sister, she said, I think David will uh, give me to you. And so she was willing to marry him. Uh, You know, he, he was, uh, he was making advances toward her and asked her, to sleep with him. She wouldn't do that, but she was willing to marry him. And sorry, let me finish that. He didn't even consider her offer. That tells you where he's coming from, right? He just wants to have, he just wants to have sex with her. He's not thinking in terms of marriage. He's not thinking in terms of uh, a true love for Tamar. He's just lusting after her. And so he wants to satisfy his lusts. And so he takes her forcibly and he rapes her. Uh, just a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. Um, the violent act did not in any way satisfy Amnon, and his lusts immediately turned to hatred, right? So he was, dis- he was disgusted by Tamar. He should have been disgusted with himself, right? But instead, he was disgusted with Tamar after he did this. He was, his hatred was, for her was so strong, he asked her to leave, she refused to leave because she knew what the law required. Interestingly, the law said that if that happened, that they were actually to get married. And in fact, not only that, but once they got married, they couldn't be divorced. They had to stay together. So this was something that was covered in the law. We looked at that in Deuteronomy 22, 28 and 29. And so I don't know how, I have no idea how Tamar kept her wits about her, but here uh, she has been raped by her half-brother. And then when he goes to try to kick her out, he, she, somehow she's got her wits about her. And he, she says, no, because what you're doing now is even worse than what you've already done. Uh, so she somehow had a clear head, even though this horrible thing had happened to her. But nonetheless, uh, Amnon goes ahead and has her thrown out. <clears throat> and then, needless to say, the whole thing devastated Tamar. I mean... She, so, so, so she's had a horrible thing happen to her. I mean, the, you know, rape is a violent act. And, uh, and uh, so, you know, Amnon forced himself on her. It's a violent act. And this horrible thing has happened to her. But beyond all of that, she realizes that basically she is now going to be an outcast in the society of Israel, if you will. She's not going to have any chance of getting married She's going to be looked at, looked down upon because of this whole incident, not because of anything that she's done, but because of what Amnon has done to her. So she's completely devastated, you know, because of the because of what's happened and because of the consequences of what's happened. Absalom found out about the rape and became terribly upset. Absalom uh, told Tamar to keep the matter quiet. He shouldn't have done that. He should have gone and talked to David about it, but he didn't do it. 
Turns out David found out about it anyway, and he became angry. And I put in there partly at himself, maybe, because remember, he sent Tamar over there. So did he feel bad about that? The fact that he had been, even though innocently, he had been, you know, participant in the whole thing by sending her over there. Now, Absalom did not confront Amnon and his anger toward Amnon festered. So he's really, Absalom's done a couple of things wrong here, right? He should have, when this whole thing happened and he found out about it, he should have gone to David and he should have allowed David to handle it. Now, we don't know how David would have handled it uh, had he had the opportunity. We do know that when he found out about it, ultimately, he became angry, but he really didn't act upon it. He didn't do to Amnon according to what the law would require, uh, right? Because, and I think it's because it's his son. So he became angry, but he didn't actually do what he should have done according to the law. But not only did Absalom fail in that regard, but he failed in terms of not going up and confronting Amnon about this. Uh, and because of that, his anger just festered. It became worse and worse. <clears throat> turned into bitterness. <clears throat> Sorry, I got something in my throat here. <clears throat> but so Absalom made a couple of mistakes here for sure. Now, this is where we left off. <clears throat> New material. After Absalom's anger had festered for two full years, he decided to exact his revenge against Amnon. So two years have gone by. Imagine for a second. I mean, if you sit around and you allow yourself to have that kind of anger and it festers for two years, yeah, you're going to be pretty angry at that point. You're going to have some serious bitterness. Now, it came about after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Absalom came to the king Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, uh, now your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, we should not all go, for we would be burdensome to you. Although he urged him, he would not go, but blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, see, he says, Let the king and his servants go with your servant. He said, No. Right, so Absalom urged him, but he wouldn't go. David wouldn't go. He blessed him. And Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But when Absalom urged him, he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Absalom commanded his servants saying, see now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, because this is a festival here with the sheep shears. We're going to look at that. When Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear, have not I myself commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. The servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. Then all of the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. I bet, right? First of all, Absalom was hosting a festival to celebrate the time for sheep shearing, uh, this was actually a long-standing custom, 1 Samuel 25, 2 through 8. Now, there's a man a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. There's a parenthesis there. We'll let that go. Verse 4, that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, have a long life. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eye. For we have come on a festive day. That's what I wanted to get to. We have come on a festive day. The, the, the sheep shearing, when they would have the sheep shearing, it was a festival. It was a big celebration when they had the sheep shearing. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and your son David. So that's what I wanted you to see. This is a festival that's going on with the sheep shearing here. 
Absalom tried to get David to join him in Baal Hazor, but David refused. We saw that. Uh, Absalom asked David if Amnon could go. Uh, David reluctantly agreed. And we wonder about that. He allowed his other sons to go as well. I mean, David knew what had happened. So you would have to think that David would have had some idea that there was animosity between Absalom and Amnon after what Amnon had done. Um, but nonetheless, he, re- he agreed, and he not only did he ascend Amnon, but he allowed his other sons to go as well. In the midst of the festivities, Absalom's servants killed Amnon on Absalom's cue. Remember, he said that when he's drunk and when I give the word, kill him. And then he told them, don't worry, don't be afraid, because I'm the one who's commanding you. So just do it. And they did. They followed his lead. They followed his command. And when he said to strike Amnon, they did. They killed him. David received the report of what had happened at Baal Hazor. Now, it was while they were on the way that the report came to David saying, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. So he got a false report. Right. Remember, the sons were on the way. They had got, they had mounted up and fled. Right. And they, they were on their way. A report came to David saying Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Then the king arose, tore his clothes and lay on the ground. And all his servants were standing by with clothes torn. This is grief. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Verse 32. Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, responded, do not let my Lord suppose that they have put to death. All the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead, because by the intent of Absalom, this has been determined since the day that he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, do not let my lord, the king, take the report to heart, namely that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Look and see where I'm supposed to go to verse 36. Now, Absalom had fled. And the young man who was the watchman, raised his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come. According to your servant's words, so it happened. As soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted their voices and wept, and also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. All right, so that's our section here. So initially, as we saw, David was told that all his sons were de- dead at the, hands of Abs- at the hand of Absalom. Uh, David and his servants responded with grief by tearing their clothes. Now, we did a whole study on that with the sackcloth and ashes and the tearing of clothes. And that was pretty standard at the time as an expression of grief was to tear the clothes and to show that you were in mourning. Your torn clothes would be an indication that you were in mourning. I'm not going to go back into that study here, but there's actually a study on the website about sackcloth and ashes, and we talk about that whole thing. So they tore their clothes. They were in mourning. They were grieving. Now, Jonadab informed David that only Amnon had died as a result of Absalom's revenge. Now, you might say to yourself, well, how does Jonadab know that? Well, what I would infer from this is that all along, remember, Jonadab came up with the original scheme, and I told you before, I don't believe his intent was for something like, what happened to take place. He didn't intend for Tamar to get raped. Uh, His intention was merely to come up with a scheme so that, you know, Amnon could get her attention and and be able to be with her and talk to her or whatever else. He didn't have any idea that it would be, uh, that this would happen, that the rape would occur. So I think from here here on, I think Jonadab has been kind of tuned in, paying attention to everything that's been going on with Amnon. Remember, two full years have passed and he's probably been aware of the fact that Amnon was thinking about I mean, excuse me, Absalom was thinking about revenge against Amnon, right? He's, paid, he's been paying attention to this whole thing the whole time. And so he's, he's, he was probably aware that Amnon was in some kind of danger uh, from revenge from Absalom. And so when the report comes in, Jonadab immediately tells David, no, 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 they're not all dead. Because he knew, he knew that Absalom had been planning this. That's what I think. He knew that Absalom had been planning it because he said, if you notice in verse 33, he said, um, well, excuse me, in verse 32, he says, uh, because by the intent of Absalom, this has been determined since the day that he violated his sister Tamar. That tells me 
that he knew that Absalom had been sort of planning this for some time. Um, what did I do? So he informed him. That's right. That's where I just was. He informed him that. There we go. That's what I wanted. The palace watchman saw that David's sons were coming. But Absalom had fled, right? So Absalom's not there. The rest of David's sons were coming. Absalom had fled. And uh, so the watchman sees that. So then they can get the report of that. Job, Jonadab announced that, right? He said, oh, they're, 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 your sons are coming. This is proof. I'm not just messing with you. I'm telling you the truth. Your sons are coming. And uh, once the, the sons, obviously, other than Absalom, the sons that were still alive all got together and wept with David and the servants, everybody was weeping because their brother was dead. Now, even though, you know, if you think about this, even though uh, some of these are half-brothers, you know, they're not even brothers by the same mother, they're half-brothers, they still have a closeness in this family to the point where there was great weeping for the rest of the sons. You know, Absalom clearly wanted his revenge, but uh, the rest of the sons were grieving because... Amnon had been killed, uh, so they were they were upset about this. Now, what's interesting about this? I mean, Amnon did something horrible. Agreed? Does anybody have a have a a doubt that Amnon had done something horrible? He had. But two years have passed, and we don't know what all has taken place in the family dynamics. But maybe absolute, maybe excuse me, maybe Amnon uh, has realized what he did and the, the horror of what he had done. And he's probably been talked about, uh, talked to about that whole thing. We don't know where the dynamics of the family stand uh, with regard to Amnon and the rest of the brothers. But they still loved him to the point where they grieved. And I think they were also grieving because of what, the way it took place. It's not like Amnon fell off, fell off his mule and hit his head and died. Absalom killed him. So they were not only grieving over the death of Amnon, but they were grieving over the fact that their brother Absalom had killed him. So, um, so that's an interesting thing to ponder. Amnon had done something horrible two years previously, and yet still the family is grieving over his death. Yeah, he had two years to think about it, and you know David already knew about it. When we read the previous uh, verses, we knew that David already knew about it. And so, you know, the brothers knew. I mean, I think, I think that he'd been confronted about the whole thing. And who knows, maybe he was even repentant with regard to what he had done. We don't know. What we do know is this, that there was grief. They were weeping. They were extremely sad, not only that he was dead, but by the way it happened. Now, Absalom fled to Gesher, uh, to his grandfather, Talmai the king, and stayed there for three years. Three years. Uh, now Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur and was there three years. <clears throat> David, uh, being comforted concerning Amnon, uh, longed for Absalom to return. So you can see David is a guy that, you know, he's very forgiving, clearly. Uh, because he was grieved over what happened to Amnon even after what he had done. And it says here in verse 39, The heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. So at some point, so David was grieving. Remember the last thing we have prior to this in verse 36 is they're all weeping. They're all grieving uh, over Amnon's death. The period of time passes. Uh, he, Absalom is, is fled. He's gone for three years. Over that three-year time, David has reached a place where he's forgiven Absalom for what he did. And uh, he's been comforted concerning Amnon. And so he's at a place, he's over the grief, he's gotten past that. He's, he's wanting to see Absalom again. Absalom is gone. He's been gone for three years. And David actually wants to see Absalom again. So it shows you something about uh, David's nature in terms of uh, being forgiving and certainly, you know, he realizes what he's been forgiven. I mean, if you think about it, in his own life, uh, David would be well aware of what he's been forgiven. Uh, you know, if nothing else, with the whole Bathsheba incident, that brought it to the forefront, what he'd been forgiven. And so he had a perspective on that. 
in terms of forgiving others. And so I think you see David's heart of forgiveness here in terms of um, not only forgiving Amnon for what he had done, but forgiving Absalom for what he did in, in taking Amnon's life. So David is showing some forgiveness here, and he definitely, he definitely um, you know, wanted to see his son uh, Absalom. I believe in this particular case, you've got to consider this. Uh, David's sin was actually right before him. That's different. It's different. But when David sinned, uh, there was a sexual offense followed by a murder, right? His affair he had with Bathsheba followed by the murder of Uriah the Hittite. What do we have here? A sexual offense. In this case, it was rape. You know, with Bathsheba, at least from all the uh, accounts that we have in, in, the, uh, in the scriptures, the relationship, the uh, sexual encounter, if you will, between David and Bathsheba was consensual. We have nothing in that record that, that makes it sound like it was rape. But it was still a sexual offense. It was adultery on both of their parts. Here we have a rape that took place, sexual offense. What's the murder that follows? Absalom murders Amnon. Now, it's, a, it's different, but nonetheless, can you imagine where David's heart is on this? His own personal experience had been he, he committed a sexual offense and then a murder followed, and now we have the same thing happening in his own family. And what did God say? What did God say to David? He said, it's going to be before you. I'm going to make it happen in your own family. That's what God told him, and sure enough, it's starting to play out already in his own family. All right. Let's, well, let's do this. Let's take a look at our scripture of the week because I have a lot to say about that, actually. So let's go ahead and go to that, and we'll come back to the uh, study of vengeance and revenge next week because uh, I want to spend some time on that. We need to talk about that. I want to give it the attention of a full class, vengeance and revenge, because uh, our sin nature really likes to do those sorts of things, right? We want to get, get payback. All right, 1 Peter 3.15, we're not going to read the word but that begins this verse. We're going to read it starting with the word sanctify. 1 Peter 3.15, let's all uh, virtually read this together. <laughs> sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Okay, well, let's start with the beginning of this. We're going to start with the first phrase, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. To sanctify means to set apart. Set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. Peter is addressing uh, believers in this passage he's addressing believers and in my opinion this is a slam dunk first peter three fifteen is a slam dunk against lordship salvation because those who preach lordship salvation say that if you do not make christ lord then you're not truly saved if you only accept him as your savior that's not enough. You have to accept him as your Lord. Well, Peter is talking to believers here, and he tells them, set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. In other words, this is something that you have to do as a believer. So born-again believers may not place Christ as Lord in their own thinking, in their hearts. They may not view him as their Lord. Now, he is their Lord. This is an important thing for everyone to understand. As an unbeliever, who is your master? Well, you could argue you are your own master, right? The selfish, egocentric sort of unbeliever approach to life. But I would make an argument from Scripture that actually your own sin nature is your master. You are a slave to your sin nature as an unbeliever. That, that's it. You have no choice. And that manifests not only in the sins that we normally think of, uh, but also in human good. The sin nature is producing all sorts of human good and sin. And all of it is a function of that fallen nature that is in every single one of us. 
When you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and I say it that way specifically on purpose, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, He is your Lord. You now have a new master. But have you actually set Him apart as Lord in your lives? Or are you unaware of the fact that you now have a new master? You know, when we become believers, we, we have freedom, right? The truth will set you free. We have great freedom. But the freedom that we have, this is important. This is so important. The freedom that we have now as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, the freedom that we have now as children of God, because remember, we've been adopted into God's family. We are children of God. The freedom that we have is now under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, we may not be aware that he is our master. A brand new baby believer may have no idea that he still has a, he has a master. He's got a brand new master, and that master is Christ. That word Lord, the word Lord means master. It's the same word in the Greek, kurios, it's master or Lord. So as believers, we have to reach the point as we grow in the faith where we say, oh, wow, Jesus is my Lord. He's my master. I need to set him apart as Lord in my heart. I need to realize I'm serving him. See, that's the whole language in the New Testament. We have language of bondservants, right? These, these apostles writing these letters, uh, these important letters that are in our scripture and calling themselves bondservants. What do they mean by that? They're bondservants of Christ, they have recognized in their faith that he is their master and they are, his, they are servants of Christ. And that is where our freedom blossoms. You have true freedom as a born-again believer, as a Christian. You have true freedom when you recognize that you are under the master Christ. That's when your freedom blossoms. If you think that you're totally independent and you have no master now, you are your own master. I'm no longer under the I'm no longer in the slave market of sin anymore. I've been released from that. I no longer have that. Now I'm I am my own master. I can rule myself. Now you 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 have no freedoms at all. You're caught up in in uh, selfishness. You're caught up in arrogance. You have no freedoms at all. True freedoms in the Christian life come about when you realize Christ is my master now. He's my Lord. And so the language that's here in 1 Peter 3.15 is so important. When he says to set him apart as Lord in your hearts, he means you have to get to that point where you recognize, wait a minute, I've got to place him in the position of Lord of my life. I have to put him in my own thinking. I have to realize that Christ is Lord. Now, he is. That's what I was saying earlier. He already is Lord. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, he is Lord. The problem is most believers don't know it. If you, in fact, if you look at the, uh, the, day, the name it and claim it crowd, right? The people who have this, this uh, distorted view of God, that God is merely a puppet. And uh, if I pray the prayer the right way with the right wording and I ask it, in faith and all of that, that God's going to do whatever I say. If I have that kind of a mentality, then I do I really view Christ as master? Am I really serving Christ or am I serving myself? I'm the master in that scenario. God's my puppet, right? So those people don't have any concept. They don't have any clue about uh, the fact that, that we now have a master. We're under the authority of Jesus Christ. He is our master. If you look at, you know, the scriptures, it does say Jesus said, ask whatever you want and it will be given to you. But then John, the apostle John comes back and clarifies that in the letter we know as first John. He says, if we ask according to his will, we know he hears us. He makes sure that everybody understands that if as long as what we're asking is according to God's will, he's going to hear that prayer and answer it. Uh, but the problem is most people don't don't understand that. My point is. When you come from a perspective of coming to that realization, hey, wait a minute, Christ is my master, Christ is my Lord, and then I, in my own thinking, I put him in that position and I now serve him, 
That changes everything. That changes everything. But it's something that happens in a believer's life. It's not something that happens the moment you trust in Christ as your Savior. It happens in a believer's life. That's what Peter's explaining here. Then he goes on. He goes on, and a lot of people know about this. He goes on to say, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. So right now is a perfect time to talk about that. Why is it that I can why is it that I can walk through this whole COVID-19 experience, everything that's happening in the world around here? How, how, how it is that I can walk through all of this without fear? How is it that you do that? See, there's a hope in us. There's an understanding in us. There's a calm. There's a peace. See, this talks about the hope that is in you. What about the peace that is in you? What about the calm that is in you? What about everything that you have because of, of what God does in your life? Always being ready to make a, make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope, the peace, the calm, the confidence, whatever it is that is in you. We always need to be ready to make a defense. Why? Can we operate without fear? It's because we have a relationship with Almighty God. And we understand that He is sovereign. We have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is our Master. We are serving Christ in our lives. And by knowing that we have a sovereign God, by knowing that we have a Master in Christ over us, we know that we are in a position where... God is the one who is going to govern what happens in our lives. So do we have anything to fear but God himself? No. The, the, there is a proper place for fear of, of Almighty God. There's a proper place for reverence toward our Lord, Jesus Christ, our Master, Jesus Christ. But is there a place for fear with regard to this coronavirus? Is there a place for fear? I mean, every, I mean, the reality of it is, folks, and I'm not, I don't mean to minimize the number of people who have died in this pandemic. Uh, you know, I was talking before class about how the CDC themselves, their number with regard to the actual deaths uh, from COVID-19 are actually under 40,000. The numbers you hear reported by the media are the ones that are kind of the exaggerated numbers I talked about before. I don't mean to minimize the deaths of 30-some-odd thousand individuals in the United States. That's a big deal. Don't get me wrong. But every time you step in your vehicle and you, you, you get out on the roads, you're at risk of dying. Every single time you get in the car and you turn the key and you drive out on the roads, you're at risk of dying. Every single time. We all, we all every single day, every time, every time we wake up for a new day, and we go through, go through our lives throughout the day, we're, we're at risk of dying. The, the ceiling of the building that I'm standing in right now could fall on me right now and kill me. Absolutely could do it right, right now. It could fall down and kill me right now. So do I live in fear of that, though? No. I, it doesn't make sense either to live in fear of COVID-19. Because, as I mentioned before, if I'm going to get sick, if I'm going to get sick from COVID-19, I'm going to get sick. Am I, and if I'm going to have the severe symptoms, I'm going to have the severe symptoms. And if ultimately I am going to die of COVID-19, then that's what's going to happen. I'm in God's hands, though. That's the point I'm trying to make. I'm not going to live in fear because I'm in God's hands. I know that none of that's going to happen to me apart from him being in control. God doesn't somehow lose sight of me or you. <clears throat> and somehow... One of us gets sick with COVID-19 and God goes, oh, wow, whoops, look at there. I didn't know that was going to happen. That's not how it works. And so when you have a relationship with sovereign God, when you have a relationship with your Lord Christ and you've put yourself in your thinking, in an understanding of the fact that he is master and you're the servant, when you have all these things in perspective, it does put us in a position of having calm and peace and hope. We can live a different way. Amen. We can live a different way, but we need to always be ready to make a defense. You never know. You absolutely have no way of knowing 
when the next opportunity is going to come along for you to give the gospel. So as Christians, how do we prepare for the gospel? You prepare every single day. You're ready at any moment. When that opportunity comes, you need to be able to make a defense. You need to be able to explain to people why it is that you have the calm that you have, why it is that you have the hope that you have, why it is that in the midst of, of, of difficult times you're able to remain at peace. You need to be able to give them an explanation about how your relationship with Almighty God changes everything. And you need to be able to tell them how they can have that same relationship. So giving the gospel is something that's not a part-time job. It's an, it's an anytime job. We have to always be ready, always being ready to make a defense to everyone, not just some, but everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And they, look at the last part of this. This is what we'll finish with. Yet with gentleness and reverence, gentleness and reverence. All right, well, gentleness... I think it's important to understand uh, the, the role that gentleness plays in the giving of the gospel. If you think about someone who has gotten to this point where they've come up and they've asked you about something, right? Or the point where they've, they've reached God consciousness. They're starting to question things. They've actually considered life after death, whether or not when they die, they're just going to disappear and no longer exist they're contemplating some things if you think about that someone who's in that place someone who's in that point where they're being convicted by the holy spirit and they're starting to ask themselves these questions and they're thinking about all these things that's a person that is very vulnerable what i mean by that they are they're kind of in a state of turbulence because they're asking themselves some questions maybe they've never asked before. Uh, they're thinking about things maybe they've never thought about before. They're looking at the possibility that there's an almighty God who they are going to be accountable to for what they've been doing in their lives. They are in a very vulnerable place, right? So they are, if you look at the exact situation that Peter's talking about, they're someone who finds themselves hopeless, What's it all about? What am I really doing? What's the point of all of this? They're hopeless, and yet they see that you have hope. So they're vulnerable. That's my whole point. Someone who is in this place where they're asking you these things, they're vulnerable. So you want to handle them with gentleness. You need to give them a message in a very calm, a very gentle, not without authority. You need to give the message with authority. But you can give an authoritative message gently. You don't have to beat them over the head with it. You want to be gentle. Because again, like I said, people that are in that place are kind of in a vulnerable position. And then the idea of reverence. Reverence. Have you ever really thought about that? Reverence. We talk about reverence with regard to God himself, right? We're supposed to have reverence toward God. And this is actually talking about having reverence with regard to making a defense. To explaining to someone why you have hope. Reverence. So what that really has to do with is the idea of having a, a full appreciation for what it is that we, any one of us ever does in terms of giving the gospel. You see what I'm saying? I need to be reverent towards just the very act of giving the gospel. That is a precious opportunity. It's a gift from God that he would put us in a position to be able to make that defense to give someone the gospel. But we should do it with reverence, realizing this is, this is important. It's almost, if you think about it, think about the way that we approach communion. You know, next Sunday morning, we're going to once again gather and we're going to have communion. And we are, uh, I hope everyone in this congregation approaches that with reverence. They realize that what we're doing and the taking of the elements, focusing our thoughts on Jesus Christ, uh, giving our attention to what it is that, that these things mean, the bread and the cup, that's something that we do with reverence. We realize that that's a very important thing. You should actually approach the giving of the gospel the same way.
That is, a, that is something that should be approached with reverence. You need to be talking to these people, realizing that that is a precious opportunity to plant seeds. Now, you might not be the one that leads them to Christ. Don't think that just because you spoke to them and you told them about your faith and you told them about Jesus Christ and salvation through faith in him, just because they walk away and they haven't placed their faith in Christ at that moment, don't think that you failed somehow. Because the point of it all is that God's the one that brings it about anyway. All we can do is plant seeds. So, but if you approach it with reverence, if you are gentle in the giving of the gospel and explaining to them about your faith, if you do these things as unto the Lord the way that you should, again, as a servant of the Master, Christ, if you do these things as, with a servant's heart and you do them in, in that way, then that is a beautiful thing and it's, a, it's something that glorifies God. That seed that's been planted in that individual, it's God's to do as far as whether they ever come to faith whether they actually ever believe in Jesus. That's God's to do. But you will have done what you were supposed to do. You were ready to make the defense. You gave an account for the hope that was in you. You had the opportunity to do so, and you did so with gentleness and with reverence. Does that make sense? So there's two halves to this, and both of them are important. The sanctifying of Christ as Lord in our hearts. We all need to do that. Do you think of him that way? As master of your life, you should. If you don't, you need to do that. Uh, Peter explains why that's important. And then all the second half of this is how we should be ready at, every, at any minute to make that defense, to give the gospel. I'll ask the people in, in the church here with me any questions. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message today. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who helps us understand these things. We thank you for what we can learn from looking at this incident in the life of David, what happened with Absalom, how David handled it, his heart of forgiveness, uh, the, the vengeance that Absalom took. We're going to study more about that. But, uh, Father, uh, we see the, the things that have taken place in David's family that are already uh, bearing forth some of the consequences of what David did in his sin. And we understand that uh, family dynamics can be difficult. And we all know that. The family, family dynamics can be difficult. But uh, what took place there with Absalom killing his half-brother, Amnon, that was something that should not have been done. David could have handled it in the right way, but Absalom took it into his own hands. Uh, to do this thing, and it, it was not right. We thank you for the reminder from the Scripture of the week uh, about how we are supposed to place Jesus Christ in the position of being master of our lives, and this is something that uh, is very important for us to truly experience the fullness of our Christian walk. We need to make sure we understand that Jesus is our Lord, our master, and uh, that's when we actually experience the great freedoms that you supply. And, Father, we thank you for the reminder that we, are, we should always be ready to give the gospel. Uh, we pray that you would open doors for us, that we might be able to talk to others about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and holy name. Amen.